This morning, we are continuing on in this little series through uh, the book of Luke. And I say a little series, I don't know. It's going to be somewhere around 10 to 110 messages. I don't know. We're just going to spend some time in Luke's gospel. And if you're wondering why in the world we're going to do this, it's because Luke's gospel is about Jesus. And Jesus is one of the most important figures in history. And you don't have to be a Christian to agree with that. Most people are going to agree with that. And one of the reasons people acknowledge that Jesus is one of the most important people in history is not simply because history is dated around his life, but because Jesus is such an obviously contrary sort of person. I don't mean he's um, nasty or mean. I just mean his life challenges the status quo in so many ways. And it's not just his life, it's his teachings. Jesus is a fork in the road, sort of a figure. When you come to Jesus, you know, I'm going to have to go this way or that way. But he's so unusual and his teachings are unlike anything you're going to run across. And this is especially true when it comes to teachings concerning how it is that you're supposed to live and I'm supposed to live going through this world. I mean, when Jesus teaches about the way, his way is very different than any other way. There's a book written by C.S. Lewis. It's called The Abolition of Man. It's one of his better works. I would suggest you read it. Everything by C.S. Lewis is really good. But there's this section in there where he talks about um, the natural law, that there are, there are codes or moral understandings around the globe, irrespective of the particular religious or non-religious views of people. You go around the world and there's going to be a 90% agreement on this is the way the world is, this is the way people are, and therefore there is a a right way and a wrong way to do things. And C.S. Lewis talks about this being just the natural law, or sometimes he uses the Chinese term, the the Tao, the the, the way. Let me give you an an example of what I'm talking about here. Uh, How many of you all have seen The Mandalorian? Does that even ring a bell? It's a TV series, it's on the Disney Channel... And uh, the, the Mandalorian, there are these bounty hunters, but they have a code, and the code includes sticking to the code. I mean, because if you have a way, here's the way. Part of the way is you live in accordance with your way. You stick to your guns. You have principles. You have convictions. You don't get off the path. Part of the way includes looking out for the young and watching one another's backs and pulling your own weight, and in some respect or another, leaving the world a better place, okay? Most people would agree with that 90% sort of a middle. Now, you're going to come across in every culture and every religious belief system or non-religious belief system, you're going to come across like a 10% disagreement that's on the periphery. And so the Mandalorian have this thing about wearing a helmet always. You never take your helmet off. That includes over your face unless it's to eat and you'd better eat in private so other people don't see you take your helmet off. And you can take it off if you're getting life or death medical attention. But part of the way is wearing a helmet all the time. And most of us would say, well, that's just kind of silly, okay? So there's a 10% disagreement. But on the whole, most of us would say, yeah, the way includes staying on track. Sticking to your convictions, helping other people, watching out for the young, watching other people's backs, being a contributor to the world, a giver more than a taker, okay? 
That's the, that's the Tao. And so whether you're talking about the Mandalorian, here's the way, or uh, the Tao in the most strict sense, like Kung Fu, Kwai Ching King, you know, Master Po and, and uh, you know, Grasshopper, it, it, the Tao the exists. Okay, you understand what I'm talking about? There's like a 90% agreement middle. The interesting thing about Jesus is when he comes along, he doesn't just teach a few peripheral things like, hey, wear a yarmulke instead of a helmet on your head. What he teaches, the way of Christ, isn't like the natural law. It, it's like a supernatural law. There's a way that is way above the way, that when the way invades the way, it doesn't break the way. It kind of fulfills it or completes it. But the way of Jesus is just way different. Okay, and some of you are saying, okay, thank you for the Near Eastern philosophy lesson, but what are you talking about? I want to give you an example of this. It's, it's in Luke chapter 6. We sort of touched on this a little bit last week. We're going to go back there and talk about the uniqueness of the way of Jesus. But before we get there, I want to spend a little bit of time just talking through the setup, the context that is given to us concerning what has become known as the Sermon on the Plain, or the Sermon on the Plains, however you want to put it. Uh, let me, and the reason I want to do this is just kind of give you the context, is because last week I said something, and I want to reinforce that, and that is when Luke puts together his gospel and does his research, there was a lot of material from which to draw. Sometimes we get this impression that when Luke put together his gospel, there may be a handful of people over here and a couple of documents, oral documents over here, and he just struggled to put something out there. I want you to understand that in the the day of Jesus, everybody knew about Jesus. There was not a person who hadn't heard Jesus teach or seen him do a miracle or knew someone uh, that, that had seen Jesus or heard a miracle. Everybody knew about Jesus. In fact, even the people that were living in holes, if there were hobbits in Palestine, they heard about Jesus. And, and I want to make that really clear because Luke makes that clear. He said, you know, when I wrote this gospel, wrote this orderly sequence, when I attempted to make this orderly account in keeping with the original eyewitnesses and servants of the word and what they handed down, I had sources, okay? Let's go to the context here for the Sermon on the Plains. Before we stand out of respect for God is speaking to us through his word, let me just kind of explain a few things concerning the context. In Luke chapter 6, verses 17 through 19, it explains after coming down with him, because Jesus has gone up on the mountain with several disciples and he's chosen 12 from among them, when he comes down with them, he stood on a level place. That's the plains. And apparently from the context, it's in Galilee, with a large crowd of his disciples and a great number of people from all Judea and Jerusalem, which are dozens of miles to the south, and with with people, a great number of people from the seacoast region of Tyre and Sidon, which are on the north, and that's even beyond the boundaries of Israel. People from outside the boundaries were coming down to Jesus. Why was everybody there? They came to hear him and to be healed of their diseases, and those tormented by unclean spirits were made well. The whole crowd was trying to touch him. Why? Because power was coming out from him, healing them all. What what I want you to understand 
is even though Jesus is in Galilee, dozens and dozens of people, or hundreds, thousands of people coming up dozens and dozens of miles from the south. They're coming from dozens and dozens of miles from the north. They're coming from outside the borders. And people are super excited about Jesus. And the crowds are pressing in. And the crowds are pressing in on Jesus. And you say, well, how, how did he get so popular? Well, it's not just that Jesus got to build up his own momentum. And I want you to understand this because sometimes we'll watch these Jesus movies, and they're pretty good movies, but you get the impression that he starts a ministry and it starts slow. You know, like he's just, you know, taking off and then it gets moving after a while. No, it was blast off from the beginning. And the reason it was blast off from the beginning is Jesus had this promotions manager named John the Baptist. And his whole mission was to make ready for the Lord a prepared people. And in a very real sense, Luke communicates, John the Baptist was preparing the way for Jesus even before Jesus was born. You saw how that happened. You remember the story of, of Zechariah? He's in the temple. He, he doubts the angel saying, oh, your, your wife's going to have this baby. John is going to be this great prophet of God. And he doubts. And for nine months, he's silent. Well, when, when he finally has an opportunity, and John the Baptist is born. People say, what do you want him named? And he asks for a writing tablet. He writes on it, says his name is John. And the Bible says that immediately his mouth was open and his tongue was set free, and he started praising God, started speaking, praising God. And he prophesies. And, and one of the things that he prophesies concerning John the Baptist, the baby, and this is the first prophecy that's happened like 400 years, so everybody's like crazy excited about this, saying, you know, this boy, he is going to be the prophet of the Most High, and he's going to prepare the way uh, for the Lord. He is going to go before the Lord and prepare, prepare the way, make ready for the Lord a prepared people. And so people know that John the Baptist is the one who's coming before the Messiah. And people have only been, you know, they've only been looking forward to the Messiah for 400 years. And so when, when John the Baptist was born and there's all this prophecy about John the Baptist, here's what the scripture tells us. This is way back in the first chapter. It says, all these things were being talked about throughout the hill country of Judea. Everybody's talking already at the birth. All those who heard about him, that is baby John the Baptist, they took it to heart saying, what will this child become? For indeed, the Lord's hand was with him. So there's all this talk. And I was reminded in the first service, you know, back in the day before you had the Internet and cell phones, if you were around small town communities, you could say something kind of interesting. And by evening, everybody knew. This is an oral culture. And this is only what people have been waiting for for centuries. And people are talking and talking and talking, even before John the Baptist says a baby can talk. Now, when he does grow up, he starts his public ministry, and he starts his public ministry before Jesus ever starts his public ministry. And what the Bible says about John the Baptist is he's proclaiming this baptism of repentance, and people from all over Israel, all over Judea, all over Samaria, all over Galilee, all over the place, including tax collectors and collaborators with the government, the the soldiers, they were all coming out to John the Baptist. You know why? Because everybody knew about John the Baptist. John the Baptist was the most famous person in all of Palestine. He was the fork in the road sort of person before Jesus ever came along. And John the Baptist's whole job was to set things up for Jesus. So everybody's coming out to see John the Baptist. And, and here's what it says before Jesus ever launches into his ministry. John explains, now the people were waiting expectantly for the Messiah, for the Christ. And what does it say? And all of them were questioning in their hearts whether John was the Messiah. Everybody's talking about it. And here's his message. John answered them all. 
I baptize you with water, but there is one more powerful than I who's coming. Uh, I'm not fit to untie his sandals. And then he explains, he'll baptize you with the Holy Spirit with fire. Now, that got people's attention. Uh, and and the, his you know, winnowing shovels in his hand, and he's about to you know, clear his threshing floor and gather the wheat into his barn and the chaff he's going to burn up with this unquenchable fire, fire that never goes out. And then the text tells us, then along with many other exhortations, he proclaimed the good news. Now, what's the good news that John is proclaiming? The good news that he's proclaiming is that the one who's greater than me, the one we've been waiting on for four centuries, the one you're hoping that I am, he's just around the bend. He's coming over the horizon. He's just around the corner. Everybody in Israel was talking about Jesus before Jesus showed up publicly. So we got prepared ground. And and so John is tossing this little softball over the middle of the plate. Jesus steps up to the plate and knocks it out of the park. He does not disappoint. And so we see from the very beginning of Jesus' ministry an explosive movement. Continuing, not starting, because John started it. John starts the Jesus movement before Jesus steps out publicly. And Jesus just takes it from there and it rocket shifts into outer space. Because in, in, in Luke's gospel, again, Luke explains, okay, Jesus got baptized when everybody else was. First thing that happens, the Holy Spirit leads him into the wilderness for 40 days. Be tempted by the devil. He gets tested, gets prepared. And here's the first thing that it says about Jesus with regards to his public ministry. Then Jesus returned to Galilee. In the power of the Spirit and news about him spread throughout the entire vicinity. He was teaching in their synagogues and people were praising him. He was being praised by how many people? By everyone. And so the crowds are pressing on Jesus and pressing on Jesus from the very first. It is just an explosive movement and and, and word about Jesus spreads everywhere. And so you see really from the very beginning in the next chapter, in chapter 5, it talks about how Jesus, you know, has this miracle with Peter and says, let down your nets for the catch. And and they fill both boats so full of fish. You know the story? Well, the setup for the story is that that he was there teaching. And it says the crowds were pressing in on him to hear God's word. And he was standing by Lake Gennesaret. And the rest of the story is he sees these boats and gets in one, sets out, sits down, and he's teaching the crowds from the boat. The point is, every you've got to know, this is how it begins. So after about two and a half years, by the time Jesus is crucified and then rises from the dead, there wasn't a single person in all of Palestine and, and a lot of people beyond who hadn't heard about Jesus who hadn't heard Jesus teach, who hadn't seen him preach, hadn't had him in their synagogue, hadn't had him touch them or been there and seen miracles or at least knew people who did. Even the people living in the holes in the ground, the hobbits, they heard about Jesus. So Luke says, here's what happened. I investigated. I made a careful investigation of everything from the very first, is how he puts it. There were these traditions these paradoses, these oral documents that were handed down from all of these early witnesses, I, original eyewitnesses and servants of the word. It's not like, oh, you know, there may be a handful of people that were around who kind of knew a few things. Everybody knew something. And the reason I'm bringing this up is to say what we're dealing with here in Luke's gospel is the historical Jesus. You don't need to wait for Newsweek to come out again and Easter week say, who's the historical Jesus? You know what happens? Here's what happens. 21st 
century people look at the Bible and they go, oh, well, that's the Jesus of faith. But I want to know who the real Jesus is. So people in the 21st century look at the first century document of careful research and they go, well, that's just the Jesus of faith. I want to know who the real Jesus is. That is upside down, inside out, and backwards. I'm not saying that, that Luke doesn't have a theological point. I'm not saying that Luke uh, doesn't edit some things. Okay, you, you can't include everything. I hear that, that you probably just shouldn't speak for more than, I don't know, two and a half hours. You lose people. So Luke limits some things. But if Luke says Jesus said it, he said it. If Luke communicates Jesus did it, he did it. And that's really important for us to understand because you're going to come across a lot of things that Jesus said and a lot of things that Jesus did, and you're going to wonder, well, did he really do that? Or did he really mean that? Or was that really Jesus? That's not on the table for discussion. And, and, and so I'm saying this not just to those of us who are believers because a lot of times around churches, well, just accept it because it's in the Bible. I think that's good advice. I do believe in the inspiration of Scripture, but if you're here this morning or you're watching and you go, I don't know that I believe the Bible. I don't know that's inspired. It's just y'all's religious book. Okay, fine. You can start there. But, but just understand that if you can't accept Luke's gospel as historical, you can't accept anything from the first century about anyone. This is a, a reasonable thing to believe that what is being presented here is the historic Jesus. So that, okay, is that clear? I think that's an important point to make. And, and the reason it's important to make is because Jesus is going to say some things, and he says some things right here in Luke chapter 6 that just defy conventional wisdom or standard morality. The way of Jesus contradicts the Tao. It contradicts. In, in many ways, what we commonly consider to be natural law. And it's either Jesus' way or the common way, but you, it, it's not both ways. Does that make sense? All right. Now, having said that, let's go ahead and stand out of respect for God who's speaking to us through his word. Here's what Jesus says concerning the way. Then looking up at his disciples, he said, Blessed are you who are poor, Because the kingdom of God is yours. Blessed are you who are hungry now, because you will be filled. Blessed are you who weep now, because you will laugh. Blessed are you when people hate you, when they exclude you, insult you, and slander your name as evil because of the Son of Man. Rejoice in that day and leap for joy. Take note, your reward is great in heaven, for this is the way their ancestors used to treat the prophets. But woe to you who are rich... For you have received your comfort. Woe to you who are now full, for you will be hungry. Woe to you who are now laughing, for you will mourn and weep. Woe to you when all people speak well of you, for this is the way their ancestors used to treat the false prophets. But I say to you who listen, love your enemies. You find that anywhere else, anywhere in the whole world? No. Love your enemies. Do what is good to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you. Pray for those who mistreat you. If anyone hits you on the cheek, offer the other also. And if anyone takes away your coat, don't hold back your shirt either. Give to everyone who asks you. And from someone who takes your things, don't ask for them back. Just as you want others to do for you, do the same for them. If you love those who love you, what credit is that to you? Even sinners love those who love them. If you do what is good to those who are good to you, what credit is that to you? Even sinners do that. 
And if you lend to those from whom you expect to receive, what credit is that to you? Even sinners lend to sinners to be repaid in full. But love your enemies, do what is good, and lend expecting nothing in return. Then your reward will be great, and you will be children of the Most High. For he is gracious to the ungrateful and evil. Be merciful, just as your Father also is merciful. Now, before you sit down, this is my birthday. So I get to ask you to do something kind of weird. You know how the Mandalorian, whenever they would teach something, they would say, this is the way. And all God's people said, this is the way you may be seated. All right. Now, obviously, what Jesus is teaching here is unconventional. Okay. It's challenging, and most people are not immediately going to say, oh, Jesus, that's so foolish or ridiculous. Because there seems to be something at the heart of what Jesus is saying that seems compelling or beautiful. But isn't it true that... As you were listening, or maybe as you've heard this before, as a Christian, you do kind of say or wonder, okay, is Jesus serious? I mean, is he overstating things uh, a, a little bit? Or is this, you know, I don't know, poetic? Is this an overblown, impossible, unrealistic love ethic, or, or is Jesus... Is, is he serious? I know it sounds beautiful, and maybe that would look good on a precious moments figurine or, you know, crocheted onto something you stick on a pillow, but am I really supposed to do this? Is that even... What? Okay, before we get into how in the way do we live in accordance with the way, before we look at, at the practical advice and direction that Jesus gives us, Before we talk about how hard it is to just live in the way, first let's just understand. That's all we're going to do today is just simply understand what it is that Jesus is actually teaching here. Okay? Let's go at it like this. There's an Old Testament passage that summarizes pretty well these tensions. And you see this like in the 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 Chinese, the the Tao, you know, that you've got the yin and the yang. You, You know, the circle with the black and the white and they're covered and you go, well, there's this over here and this over there and it's part of one in the same circle. And But in the Hebrew understanding, it is that you do a couple of things that seem to be intention, but the idea is to do them simultaneously at the same time. Here it is in Micah chapter 6 verse 8. What is it that the Lord requires of you? To do justice and to love kindness and walk humbly with your God. The idea is, okay, there's there's a toughness and a tenderness, there's a courage and conviction, and then there's compassion, and you live this out simultaneously. You're not flip-flopping. And like sometimes I'm just and sometimes I'm merciful. Like, like what? You do this. This is how you live. Well, how do you do it? And Jesus weaves this together in a really interesting and compelling, and I want to present to you realistic way. On the one hand, he's saying, look, there's a warning about injustice. Woe to you oppressors, you, you know, you rich, comfortable, 
full, laughing, the persecutors of these miserable, poor, hungry, uh, you know, under your feet, miserable people. You know, woe to you. Okay, so there is this calling out of injustice. There needs to be balance, and Jesus is not happening in this world. So there's a concern for justice. But then he moves on and he says, but I say to you, like it's almost a contrast, but I say to you, love your enemies. Do good to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you. Pray for those who mistreat you. And throughout history, people have wondered, well, are you sacrificing one for the other? Because Jesus, it sure looks like on the surface of things, you're saying, forget the justice part. And just run with this overblown ethic. Because it doesn't seem like both can go together. Jesus, are you, are you saying, just, just love and let people walk all over you. And if they mistreat you, just keep letting them do it. And is Jesus arguing for a certain pacifism that only encourages and feeds more injustice? And I want to suggest, you know, that that's not what he's teaching here. Uh, and, and I can explain why he's not teaching that. First of all, that just seems rather inconsistent. If there's a concern for justice in the Bible and in the sermon that Jesus is preaching here, well, well, surely he's not encouraging a behavior that increases injustice levels in the world. That just doesn't seem con- consistent logically. But it's also not consistent with the life of Jesus. A good example of this, if you're looking for some text, is over in John chapter 18, Remember, Jesus is on trial. It's an illegal trial. They're doing illegal things at this illegal trial, and he knows the people who are trying him are trying to get him to go to to his death. Jesus also knows the will of the Father is for Jesus to die. But in the midst of the acceptance of the Father's will before ever being tried, there are illegalities that are going on at the trial. And so there's a moment where Jesus says, okay, because they slap him and say, okay, wait. If I've done something wrong, bear witness to it. But you can't just go slapping me around until you've borne witness and made a judgment. He's calling them on the injustice of the trial in the middle of the injustice. It's not that Jesus is just, oh, you just be unjust, whatever. I'm not going to call you on it. No, he does. Same thing with the Apostle Paul. Uh, the Apostle, this is over in Acts chapter 16, if you're wanting to look it up, around verse 35 through 6, somewhere in there. Anyways, he's, he's arrested, Paul and Silas, and they're, they're beaten thrown into prison. Later on, they get out and they have an opportunity. They have their day in court and they say, wait a second, we're Roman citizens. You can't beat us, throw us into prison without a trial. I'm not letting you guys get away with that. And he takes his case all the way to Caesar, basically. What's Paul doing? Same thing that Jesus is doing. We're not okay with injustice and we're going to push back against it and we're going to say something. So there's not an encouragement to the to allow injustice to continue. So what's going on here? You, you say, Ernest, wait a second. You're just you're just saying that. How do you know Jesus isn't being brutally oversimplistic or childish by saying, just love your enemies and do good to those who hate you, and in the end, it's all just going to work out. That is kind of unrealistic. I don't know if you've known any brutal people or unjust people, but you give them an inch, they take a mile. Have you figured that out? 
Is Jesus being unrealistic or Pollyannish or just saying, forget justice, that's not your problem? I don't think so. Let's look to the first example that Jesus gives after he says, love your enemies, do good to those who hate you, bless those who curse you, pray for those who mistreat you. The first example that he gives is if someone hits you on the cheek, offer the other also. Let me explain this. Now, I... I don't know martial arts, okay? I'm, I'm not an expert in it. Um, when I was younger, sorry, Mom. When I was younger, my parents said, you can have lessons. And I said, I want karate lessons. He said, no, your brother's taking piano lessons. What instrument do you want? It's like, I want karate lessons. And my response was, it's, it's karate or nothing. So my brother knows how to play the piano, and I still don't know how to hit and kick people with any efficiency. I didn't get lessons. And that's okay. I'm not bitter. In fact, I forgive you. Mercy to the, mercy to all. So I don't know how to hit and kick people, but I like to watch martial arts movies. I, I have the Kung Fu three seasons on DVD. I've seen all the episodes, seen them more than once. Okay. And I don't ever remember a single scene where Master Poe is talking to Grasshopper and says, you want to go for the death blow? You want to put him down? Here's what you do. Slap him on the cheek. That's not, I know enough to know that's not how you put somebody down. That's just an insult. And it becomes even, we're not talking about permanent physical damage or, you know, life-threatening harm. We're talking about an insult. And that becomes even more obvious when you look at the Sermon on the Mount over in Matthew's Gospel where Jesus says, if someone strikes you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. When you're talking about the right cheek, we know what we're talking about is a backhanded slap. It's the, the right hand to the back, to the, to the right cheek. It's backhanded. You say, well, how do you know it wasn't a left, left-handed punch? Nobody used their left hand in public. The left hand was the unclean hand. You just didn't touch people with it. That, that said more negative about you than it would about anybody else. Uh, and you go to the, to this day, you can go to the Middle East. Northern Africa, Middle East, anywhere where there's heavy populations of Muslims, you don't get your left hand. Just keep it tucked away. You don't wave with your left hand. That's not friendly. You don't eat with your left hand. You don't pick up groceries with your left hand. You don't do anything with your left hand except wipe yourself with it. Seriously. Only barbaric, uncivilized people ever use their left hand in public. It's the unclean hand. So when Jesus says... If somebody slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. We're not talking about a a life-threatening, permanent damage sort of a situation. We're talking about an insult. And so if you turn the other cheek, if it's the right and then you turn the other, well, you got the left cheek exposed. The left cheek is the cheek that gets kissed first when you greet one another. You kiss both, but you always start with the left cheek. The invitation here is, okay, you've insulted me. I'm still leaning in for relationship. I'm waiting. What Jesus is not saying is, hey, if somebody's mistreating you, l- just let them keep pummeling you. That's not what's being communicated. He is also not saying, and if someone else is being assaulted, just look the other way. If somebody else is being mistreated, just let it stand. Walk on the other way because what are you going to do? If people are going to beat people up, people are going to beat people up. That's not what Jesus is saying. Okay, just just to be really, really, really clear on this. If 
it's not teaching pacifism. If somebody's trying to break into your house and you feel like your life or the lives of your family are being threatened, the Christian thing to do is not to open the door for them. You know why? Because Jesus isn't talking about life or death. And you don't have the right to turn somebody else's cheek for them. And if you're a police officer or a law-abiding citizen who is capable and you see somebody else abusing or hurting uh, an innocent victim, you don't get to look the other way. You don't get to walk away. You don't get to pretend that you didn't see anything. You don't get to, to be non-interventionist. You know why? Because you don't have the right, I don't have the right, to turn somebody else's cheek for them. And if you happen to be, I don't know, let me just pick this out of thin air. If you happen to be like, I don't know, maybe a New York City district attorney, you don't have the right to say, I'm just not going to prosecute a lot of crimes. You know why? Because you don't have the right to turn other people's cheeks for them. Especially if as a representative of the court or a law enforcement official, especially if you specifically have been given the charge of upholding justice and protecting the innocent. What Jesus is saying is, look, you got insulted. There's a way forward into justice, reconciliation, making things right, balance. But you're going to have to not be vindictive or spiteful. If somebody slaps you on the right cheek, well, turn to him the other also. Lean in. Give them another chance. Don't let them keep pounding and pounding and pounding on your face. Now, you, you take away that power from them, but then you, you, you lean in with some hope. Are you leaving yourself vulnerable to getting punched in the face? Well, yeah. But for Jesus, maintaining healthy relationship, restoring relationship, increasing relationship, advancing the kingdom of God or representing God well is of more value than the insult that you bear or the shirt you have to share or the lawnmower that you lend and never get back because your neighbor just never returned it, but that's okay, you're not bitter. There are just certain things that are more valuable. Now, next week we're going to talk about why this is so hard in our flesh to do, how the way of Jesus is more challenging than any other way. And we're going to talk about some things that Jesus gives us in this passage that help us to live in the way of Jesus. But for now, just real quickly in the time that we have left, I, I want to mention that this is realistic. That what Jesus is teaching here is probably not even just realistic. It may be the only way forward to what we all want. And what is it that we want? To live in a world of justice and kindness. Where people are reconciled, humbly walking before God and before one another. Let me just get, let me give you some food for thought. Let me give you an illustration to think through. Suppose, and this has no, this is just an example or illustration. I'm not talking about my neighbors. My neighbors are awesome. We have great neighbors. But let's just suppose that you have a neighbor that's a little difficult. You've known him for about three years. And your neighbor says, 
I'd like, can I borrow your lawnmower? And you think to yourself, you know, I, you don't tell them this, but you say, I know, I know my neighbor and I know they're kind of a taker more than a giver. And the reason I know they're more of a taker than a giver is because they, every Friday night, and if not Friday night, Saturday night, man, they are just, they're, they're loud. They're partying loud. And, and I, I've gone over and said, Hey, could you turn your music down before 2 a.m. in the morning? And they just ignore me. And I just get these weird vibes like, leave me alone. I'm going to do what I want. You can't stop me. But for some reason, your neighbor asks you, can I borrow your lawnmower? And you're also thinking, I live in a really nice, we live in a good neighborhood and, and you've got a decent house. You got a couple of cars and, you know, if you just spent less money on booze and weed, you could afford a lawnmower. And you're thinking these things, okay? But, but then Jesus intervenes, like, oh, he's so inconvenient sometimes. And, and Jesus says, okay, lend without expecting anything in return. Ugh. And I didn't even know Jesus said that until Ernest said that. And now I'm mad at Jesus and Ernest. But okay. So you're, you, you say, fine. You, you let them use the lawnmower. And sure enough, they don't return it the next day or the next day or two weeks later. And you're, you're trying to be subtle about it. You go over and knock on their door and he never comes to the door. You think he's home, but he, he seems to be avoiding you intentionally. It's like, oh, he's just going to challenge me. It's what he always does. And so you pray about it. And I'm not saying you should do this, but sometimes, you know, you pray, God, what should I do? And the Holy Spirit speaks to you and leads you to do things that are kind of unusual. And, and you just feel like the Lord is leading you to go buy another lawnmower. Uh, or maybe to borrow your other neighbor's lawnmower. <laughs> and you make it a point because you don't want him like mowing all over your life. So you make it a point that the next time you mow your yard, you're going to mow in the front yard at a time when he's going to be there. And so he, he pulls up like it's Saturday morning, 10 o'clock, and you're out mowing your yard with your new mower that you bought or with the mower you've borrowed from next door. And he sees that you're mowing your yard and he knows you still got your mower. Now, I don't know what's going to happen next, okay? All I'm saying is you've opened up all kinds of possibilities. Maybe now he'll return it or apologize Maybe you'll have an opportunity when he apologizes to forgive. Or maybe you have an opportunity to say, hey, I, just, I was giving you some space. I didn't know you were going through a hard time. Or maybe because you bought a new mower, you just give that mower to your neighbor. I'm pretty sure whatever happens, things are not going to escalate in a negative way. And all kinds of good things could happen. You know what you've just done? You've been kind and you've moved toward justice, balance, setting things right, reconciliation. It's not one or the other. It's both. You didn't let them walk all over you. In fact, you communicated, you can't take this from me. I'm giving it to you. I don't know what's going to happen next, but here's what is happening. You're building up credit. Remember the part where Jesus says, it's not on the screen, but he says, if you love those who love you, what credit is that to you? Even sinners love those who love them. If you do what is good to those who are good to you, what credit is that to you? Even sinners do that. If you lend to others who are going to repay you, what credit is that to you? Even sinners lend to sinners expecting to be repaid in full. Credit. What are you going to do with all these credits? Well, I, I, 
I think one of the things is you can buy justice with the credit. I don't know what will happen with your neighbor, but it wouldn't surprise me if at the very least he started turning down his music at midnight instead of 2 o'clock in the morning. Maybe, and I'm not saying you're Jesus or I'm Jesus or anything, but maybe like Jesus, we could take that credit and maybe purchase people for God. What Jesus is communicating is the little insult, the slap on your cheek, or the shirt you give away, or the lawnmower you don't reclaim. That's so much less valuable to me than your credit. Love your enemies. Do what is good to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you. Pray for those who mistreat you. And all God's people said, this is the way. Let's bow forward to prayer. Uh, Jesus, your way is hard, but wise. You are so uh, wise and uh, sophisticated and nuanced. We should expect that from you as you talk about justice and mercy, both of which actually meet together in perfection on the cross. And they meet together in perfection, not only on the cross, but they ought to meet together perfectly in the way in which we live our lives. So, Lord, we we ask that it would be so. We we do. We ask that it would be so. That we would embrace your way and, and thus, with our credits, do something for God who is eternal. The, the sting on the cheek, the shirt off the back, the lawnmower that's given away, that's, those are all temporary losses. But we know whenever we do something for you, God, and for your kingdom, the gain is permanent. Help us to be wise as we, of course, do justice, love mercy, and humbly walk with you. Open our hearts, open our minds, change our lives, and we ask that in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's go ahead and stand as we continue.